Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Jason Shepard, VP of Ecosystem at Zadida, an edge virtualization company offering solutions for IoT edge orchestration. Jason left his role as CTO of IoT and edge computing at Dell Technologies last year to join Zadida with the stated goal of bringing IoT out of its AOL stage. In this interview, Jason discusses the significance of open source collaboration and interconnected ecosystems in scaling IoT and edge adoption. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Ori Industries. Ori Industries is building the world's largest edge cloud. Their products power the next generation of intelligent applications through unparalleled access to major communication networks worldwide. Ori is laying the foundations for application developers to seamlessly deploy to uncharted edge computing infrastructure across the globe. Learn more at ori.co. And now, please enjoy this interview between Jason Shepard, VP of Ecosystem at Zadida, and your host, Matt Trefiro. I'm Matt Trefiro. I'm the CMO of Vapor.io and also the co-chair of the State of the Edge project at the Linux Foundation. And I'm here today with Jason Shepard, the VP of Ecosystem from Zadita. How are you doing today, Jason? I am great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, terrific. So before we get into all kinds of interesting things, Edge and IoT and Linux Foundation and Zadita, I'd just like to start at the beginning. How'd you get into technology? Yeah, well, if we start at the beginning, first the earth cooled, then the dinosaurs came, and then like, no, um, no, but this, I, I've always been interested in tech, like I made my parents crazy pressing every button I could find, and you know, got into tinkering things, and you know, building RC cars, and just all kinds of stuff, and... Um, I was better at taking things apart. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not putting them back together. I've just always been interested in, in you know, technology, but also, but more so for how it, like, you know, impacts, you know, people for good, not necessarily like all the, you know, nuts and bolts in all cases, although I am technical. I would always say like, if it's fuzzy, I'm on it. So I've kind of been fortunate to get onto a lot of different tech trends. I, I you know, started actually as a mechanical engineer, following in my dad's footsteps. But then as I kind of progressed through things, I decided purposely to get more into the software side and really combine that with the business side. What kind of mechanical engineering were you doing? Actually, my first job was at Dell, you know, where I basically designed you know, with the teams the, the sheet metal and plastic enclosures for the PCs and did that for a number of years. And then I went to the startup world, a company called ClearCube. Actually, initially, it was a company called uh, Wavefly that was doing really cool stuff a little ahead of its time. It was like an MP3 player that you would stream audio from your computer where you downloaded a bunch of stuff from Napster to your home stereo. So kind of like a home stereo experience, but for MP3s. At the worst time to be doing anything related to MP3s when Napster got shut down. And so really fun experience, but short-lived. And then went to a company called ClearCube in Austin, where I just started wearing a bunch of different hats, as you do in a startup world. Then I went back to Dell, and I was about 13 years at Dell, and just you know, really enjoyed working there. Great company. Was always kind of on the leading edge of new tech trends, various roles in CTO and R&D and, and whatnot. And you know, that's when I kind of transitioned. And in 2014, you know, we're like, hey, what do we want to do with this fuzzy you know, IoT thing? And so blank sheet of paper started from scratch and built up, you know, the, the strategy with the team, 
this was pre-EMC acquisition. So then all of a sudden that little acquisition happens and it just grew. And, and I, I just proactively with the team started building up our partner ecosystem. Got EdgeX Foundry started in July of 2015, which you know was started as an IT idea internally. And that just hit 5 million downloads out in open source as a sister project to both State of the Edge as well as uh, Eve that Zadita contributed. And just, you know, the whole point, you know, long story short is it's fill gaps, you know, go be curious, you know, don't step on people along the way. You know, that's not cool. But just, I always tell my teams, the best way to get a job is already to be doing it. Yeah. And so I've just been able to kind of morph over the years and, and, you know, IoT. And then of course, now it's fashionable to call it edge, but there's a lot of edges. And of course, that's why we're working together and why, why you guys are doing important work with the glossary. And, you know, it's just continuously improving and surround yourself with good people you know, that, that also help you improve. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned IoT, you know, I'm trying to think of the year uh, that I first, first came on my radar. It was probably 2014, 2015. That was when it really started kind of picking up. I mean, obviously IoT was coined in what, 99 internet things, but you know, at that time we had a lot of customers starting to come to us and again, this was at Dell and, and they're like, I want to buy some IoT. Really? What color would you like? Right. You know, I mean, it was just like, because IoT is more of a concept than a, than a thing per se, even though it involves quote unquote things. And ultimately, you know, when something is a buzzword, when people talk more about the technology than the actual use cases. Yeah, isn't that the truth? You know, so 2014, 2015, it was like, hey, buy my IoT platform. And it was like, the joke then was 150 IoT platforms. And now then it turns into 450 as the running joke. But it's like, well, what should I do with it? It doesn't matter, just buy my platform. You know, and then you can figure out what to do with it. Then in uh, 18 or 19, you started hearing people talk about outcomes and let's talk about use cases and flip it the other way around. And, you know, ultimately everything I've been doing with lots of really good people in the industry, you know, YLF Edge and all that is we need to drive standardization to scale this thing. And IoT, it's, it's as much a business question as it is, you know, technology. Is there reason to network things and add, you know, risk and complexity to my life to get value? And open always wins in the end for scale. Would Dell, uh, as a great company, ship a PC every second of the day if it costs $1,000 to connect your keyboard? No. You know, you must, you need to democratize the South to monetize the North, so to speak. South being southbound connectivity, you know, in the, in the IT sense. And so, you know, we got involved with the EdgeX stuff, of course, and then, and then LFS. That's why I chose to come to Zadita. You know, again, Dell's a great company, but it was just kind of like, you know, time for a change. Wanted to get back in the startup world. And, you know, it just felt like the right thing to do. I knew the guys when it got to the point where I could replace uh, Dell on my blogs with Zadita. I'm like, well, maybe I should just come work for you guys because we're very philosophically aligned around the importance of open. You know, imagine if one company on the internet, maybe it wouldn't have worked out so well. Um, Sometimes it feels like three companies on the internet. Yeah, well, well, true. But you know, the ultimate goal here is interconnected ecosystems. More, you know, IoT is sort of a misnomer. Internet of things, eh, it's a series of increasingly larger intranets that as you find business value and you can manage IP protection and privacy and all that, you're going to find entirely new ways of things coming down. I like to say we're in the AOL stage of IoT right now, just kind of getting things online. <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting plastic discs in the mail that we yeah, throw out. Yeah, getting CDs in the mail and, and whatnot. But at the same time, you know, and, and it's not even a technology problem right now. There's fragmentation, of course, but the problems I've seen over the years, I've been doing this for five years, as we said, Number one, it's a business problem. You know, is there a reason to do it? There's a lot of solutions looking for problems out there. Number two, it's a problem with people. You know, people are your greatest asset, you know, out there and then comes data. But, you know, the old IT versus OT equation, you know, line of business often drives things. You know, OT operational technology been running processes in the physical world for a long time, completely isolated from networks because it's, you know, things go boom in the OT world if you, if you have a breach. 
But meanwhile, you have to connect that stuff to get you know, visibility and, and drive some analytics and drive change. And it's not about who owns stuff. It's about what are the capabilities. Meanwhile, even in, with an OT, like the production person would compete with the quality person because to re- increase quality, sometimes it reduces throughput. The safety person, you know, could, could like, and then even in the IT world, the PC people don't necessarily get along with the server people. So, oh, you're not going to put you know, your VDI PCs in my server room. You know, we see, we see it across the board. And, and so people is one of the challenges because also IoT, data from the physical world, exposes dirty laundry. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I didn't really realize that I was that inefficient. And so that, and, and case studies always become hard. It's like, would you want to share that you were that terribly inefficient? You didn't know that pump was running down in the basement, you know, 24-7. Anyway, so just there's that. Then you get into fragmentation. Then you get into security as a challenge. You know, if you don't solve problems one through three, business case, people, technology fragmentation, which of course we're addressing at Alpha and other great consortium efforts out there. If you don't have solve problems one through three, you don't have a security problem because you're not doing anything. Right. So N- nothing worth breaking into. So I mean, that's one of the things I like about you, Jason, is uh, everything's so high bandwidth. I think I've had some of the most compressed five-minute conversations with anybody. <laughs> well, let's, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'm going to pick a few threads to talk out. You know, partly because our, you know, you and I have been in this in a long time. And we can talk a lot inside baseball, but I think many of our listeners are broader. So let, let's start at the highest level. So Internet of Things. The definition I remember probably came from somebody like somebody out of Wired magazine, where it's like, look. You know, we just we're starting to adopt IPv6, although you know it still hasn't really been adopted. But there's enough IP addresses to give every device on the planet and all the ones we imagine coming an IP address, and everything's going to be hooked up to the internet. And I still think that at the high level that sort of holds. But I think there's a couple of things that are that I'd like to tease out. So the first thing is it's called the Internet of Things, not the on-premise Net of Things. Yeah. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about how all these devices relate to on-premises equipment, but also how they relate to the internet and why it's the internet of things and why that's so important. Yeah, I mean, so obviously at the, in the purest sense, you know, IoT, internet of things, it's about, you know, kind of chronicling the physical world. And, and there's kind of two, and that, that can be certainly on-prem within a building, within someone, somebody's home, you know, a refinery, out in the oil rig, a mine, you know, out in the boonies. You know, whatever, or of course, out you know on a, a vehicle like some something kind of moving. So either fixed or moving, and I'm documenting the physical world. And, and IoT tends to be upload centric, which is different than you know, of course download centric. You know, to client devices. You know, if you're doing cloud gaming, you're, you care about latency, and there's a lot of stuff where you care about latency going up. But generally speaking, it's a different direction. You know, you're taking data from the physical world and you're uploading it. And then the Internet of Things, as you know, I mentioned before, it's it's kind of this notion of interconnecting devices, getting that data from the physical world. Initially, it starts with monitoring. You know, rarely do people go straight to analytics. It's just visibility. And then you start applying tools like, you know, AI and ML. Like, I just kind of assume it's all related. I, I don't even really like to talk about, you know, IoT as like, you know, the, the end game and story AI or whatever. There, it's, it's what outcome do you want? And then you apply the right technologies. But the, the notion of, you know, IoT is kind of like a new enabler for new data, new views into the physical world. And then, of course, more data that you can, you can analyze, you know, I think is important. There tends to be two workload themes that you see, and there, there's different adoption patterns for each. So, you know, I would call it machine intelligence, as I kind of coined it you know, earlier on, um, just you know, any kind of structured telemetry. So this is from sensors you know, in the physical world. 
that speak a certain protocol and there's thousands of protocols. This is why EdgeX Foundry, Fledge, other projects within you know, Alpha Edge Matter are trying to create more of a universal you know, secret decoder ring. And then you've got computer vision, which is you know, cameras as the sensor. Right. And you can tell a lot by the world with a camera. Both even, even things you wouldn't expect, things outside yeah, of the yeah. visible spectrum, infrared and ultraviolet. Yeah, yeah. You know, people are using cameras for you know, thermal. I mean, COVID, COVID right now, a lot of people are doing COVID response with AI models using computer vision. Computer vision is the killer app for AI. So nobody, unless you sell connectivity you know, over a wide area, do you think it's a good idea to send broad 4K video over the internet? You know, you want to analyze it locally and then trigger events. But anyway, it just gives you new visibility. But while a camera can tell thermal data, you know, a high-speed camera can tell vibration of a wobbling you know, shaft of a motor. Last I checked, it can't tell voltage. You know, you need a, a sensor for that. And then even vibration, it's good to have the sensors. Last I checked, you probably... Aim a camera at the voltmeter readout, the analog yeah, yeah, voltmeter there we readout. Go. Well, people are doing that, actually, in, in, for water meters, like a legacy you know, water meter. People are, are snapping a camera on top of it out in the city. I believe it. The retrofit, rather than breaking the pipe and putting a digital meter in there, like a sensor, they're literally putting an OCR sensor, an op- optical recognition, on top of the analog meter. Yeah, we see that all, all the time. But last I checked too is you probably, even though you could use a camera as a motion sensor, you probably don't want that as a motion sensor in your bathroom. You know, so it's a matter of privacy and, you know, you know just because you can't. Or in the TSA should. lines, but I don't have much say in that. Yeah. So it's, you know, just the whole notion of the IoT, it's, it's networking systems, getting that view into the physical world, you know, starting with basic visibility and then advanced classes, analytics, actually advanced class, advanced class, advanced, advanced. 201 up to 501 is like the analytics of the analytics. So I literally look at, what's the best place to run that workload to get the optimal results of performance versus cost? Yeah, so let's let's talk about that a little because I think this is a that's a really great segue into some of the work that you and I recently did together with the Linux Foundation. So, you know, there's been this funny line that I've used. You ask 100 people where the edge is and you get 122 answers, right? <laughs> and and that's to some extent that is true. You know, certainly over the last three years, uh, we've seen a lot of convergence uh, on agreement. And the Linux Foundation across all the LFUDGE projects came to an agreement and published a taxonomy. And so what I'd like to do, well, first of all, I think that that when you think about connected devices and you think about them eventually having a path back to the internet, because for the most part, I mean, there's going to be, you know, oil derricks in the middle of the ocean that maybe we won't do, we maybe we'll do batch store and forward data collection. We're not looking to do live collection. Yeah, it's more like batch. And then, and, you know, sometimes it's over satellites. You want to minimize, you got a straw, so you want to minimize what you're sending over that. Yeah, I, yeah. But I mean, clearly we're moving into a world where where that last mile communication is becoming increasingly more ubiquitous and becoming increasingly less cost for more data and more devices, you know, whether it's, it's more fiber or more 5G or alternative uh, technologies. And so to some extent, the entirety of the internet, everything that we do can be traced from the device or the sensor, the smallest thing, all the way back up to some centralized cloud that might be, you know, in Seattle with Amazon or Microsoft. And there's a bunch of way stations along the way, the regional data centers, the access edge, the on-premises edge, and things like that. And when you're looking at building an application across the totality of that, that spectrum, you have to make a lot of decisions about where you run your workloads. Some places might have more power and be more easily scalable, more easily upgradable. Other places might be faster, more real time. And so what, I, what I'd love for you to do is to walk our audience through first the, the spectrum from, from the smallest device to the centralized cloud and all the stopping points and maybe touch upon you know, what you should be thinking about workloads that have to run there or you might want to run there versus other workloads you might want to run somewhere else in concert to deliver an end-to-end solution. 
Yeah, cool. Yeah, so definitely. So obviously we worked quite a bit on this this taxonomy paper. So kind of how I'll outline it is, is basically, you know, how we outlined it in the community with an LF Edge, this taxonomy paper that was just released uh, recently. You can find it online, you know, LF Edge taxonomy white paper. But, you know, and there's a lot of kind of different definitions out there, as you said, and, and a lot of folks talk about it as like, you know, we've got the near edge and the far edge and the thick edge and the thin edge and and the industrial edge and the enterprise edge and the consumer edge. And it's like, you know what? They're actually not all different. It's one continuum that you apply different tools and considerations to and domain knowledge to. But we need one cake with lots of flavors of icing and sprinkles. And and it's a continuum. And, and you, you have it's based on inherent trade-offs. And so if you focus on inherent technical trade-offs of why you would do something in one spot or you have to in one spot versus another, you're always right. If you use loaded, ambiguous terms, you confuse people and you end up with 122 definitions. Yeah. So, so what are some of those, the most important trade-offs that you need to look at? Yeah. So number one, you know, it's, it's, am I on a wide area network relative to the user or process I'm serving, or am I on a, on a local area network? And the reason why that, that matters, and maybe another way to put it another way is, is that latency critical? And this is in your, the glossary, you know, from within state of the edge, of course, is it latency critical? Meaning... I have a safety issue or I lose $100,000 you know, if, if, you know, in my process if something goes down or is it latency sensitive? Latency sensitive, you know, like Netflix, no one's going to die if my video shuts off. Right. You know, I might, might be annoyed that you know, I was watching that and really into it, but still. Um, so anything that's latency critical, you will always, always, always run over a WAN or a LAN, always locally. The brakes in your car, no matter how fast that 5G connection is you know, and how low latency it is and you know, reliable it is, you will never, ever run latency-critical stuff over land. Always local. If you're a nuclear plant, you'll probably never connect up to the cloud because you know, bad news if something happens. Meanwhile, if you're a building, like, no problem. or it's, it, it depends on what you're doing. Uh, real time in a building automation world is 15 minutes. Real time to your airbag, a little different. Yeah. So anyway, so that's that. WAN or LAN, are you in a physically secure data center or are you not? If you are in a physically secure data center, whether it's Colo or a traditional on-prem data center up in a cloud that's like you know, Fort Knox, you know, to get into any of those public clouds, it's different than if you're a box distributed out in the wild and someone can put their Sitting hands Sitting on, on. A, uh, a street lamp. Yeah, yeah, it could be out, uh, in a public right-of-way. It could be you know, in, a, in a closet in a retail store. It could be your smartphone, of course. That's also part of the continuum. It's not just about IoT by any means. The Edge continuum includes both client-based devices and, and IoT gateways, servers, whatever. So that's physically secure. So in the, as we define in this taxonomy, so you've got, you, know, you mentioned some of them. So you have the public clouds and you've got the internet exchange and you've got the regional edge, you've got the access edge, and it's kind of moving hops closer to that boundary condition. And then all of a sudden you're on a LAN. You know, it's a last mile network and then you're on a LAN. On-prem data center is the first step, but guess what? That still uses pretty much the same tools as in the cloud. Uh, we are seeing some evolution of those tools, like including Kubernetes extending down. I got to manage distributed clusters, but it is still physically secure, locked up data center in your traditional building, or a micromodular data center sitting outside the building if you needed some more real estate. Right. Or, or a, I roll in a, an app outpost box or an Azure Stack rack. Sure, sure. Yeah, so that's, those are generally, you know, the, the latter could be even not as physically secure, but generally physically secure. Then you get into where I'm outside of a data center, you know, in the places I mentioned, distributed. I don't necessarily, not only can someone walk up to that box, I got to make sure that you can't load malware in it locally. You do not want people to locally log into it. You have to go through some sort of console. You want to use root of trust like TPM and, and the like. But you also, you don't necessarily know what the network is. You don't often own the network when you're distributing, especially as a managed service. It depends on who you are, you know, whatnot, like the network within a building. So you can't rely on a firewall. 
you know, per se, like you do in a data center. And so, you know, like what we're doing with Eve with an LF edge, and of course, you know, commercially, you know, with, with my company, like it's, you have to have um, distributed firewall capabilities. You need to be able to say this app can only talk to that cloud and this app can only talk to that app and a zero trust security model is part of it. So it's like, you know, only based on a set of, you know, checks and balances do you enable different access. Um, when, you say, when you say you don't own the network, can you, can you yeah, who's, who's the you in that situation? Yeah, sorry. So as an example, so we have a, a customer that we've been working with. Um, okay, so if, you, if you're like a service provider, wireline or telco or otherwise, you own your network. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a given. But if you're a wireline or so, if you're a telco service provider and you put CPE equipment on-prem, but then beyond that, you don't own that network. Yeah. Whatever network they have on-prem. We have a customer that we're working with in the healthcare space that does medical imaging equipment, and they sell that equipment, you know, as a release it to hospitals as a service, and they have to update those systems. They're kind of, you know, computers embedded inside these really fancy machines, very expensive, and they, they drop AI models on them to look for, you know, got x-rays. Mm-hmm. And they do not own the hospital network, but they have to make sure that their stuff is secure. So they're looking at things like Eve as the, this kind of bare metal substrate that can help provide that distributed firewall capability. So by proxy, they can only get back to their cloud. They can punch through firewalls and whatnot, but it still be secure in the greatest scheme of things. So it's just a different scenario than if, if you're on-prem and you're the network engineer and you own that network. We see it all the time. We've seen other people using, you know, in these distributed boxes, you know, Eve as a project with our controller or otherwise as a way to get data off of the network. So because, you know, if you have an OT network, like a process network that's historically been isolated for safety reasons and uptime, you know, OT actually cares not as much about security. They do, but what they really care about is uptime and safety. Yeah. IT cares about data security and governance, you know, and, and whatnot. And so that's why where you see these worlds converging we see a lot of times people are putting these boxes in as like kind of secure network proxy on top of the process. You can tell an IT person real quick, you know, the OT people sniff them a mile away. I've seen IT people say, hey, we could just update from the cloud your process controllers and whatnot and just willy-nilly and they're like, get out. Right. <laughs> no. An overlay on top, sure, but you just don't do that. So, but, but again, it's a continuum, you know, as you go further left, you get into that kind of, well, we called it the smart device edge in, in the paper. The reason we did that is that, you know, so on-prem edge, and then you get outside of a physically secure data center, but still capable of running apps. So the smart device edge is single node with 256 megs of memory up to a small cluster with the right features of the Kubernetes paradigm, you know, eventually, but outside of a physically secure data center. And this includes IoT, gateways, servers, you know, hubs, routers, whatever, and smartphones, client devices, PCs. In the, the client world, iOS, Android, there's very established ecosystems around you know, those things, marketplaces, you know, Windows, of course, all kinds of tools. In IoT, man, it's the Wild West. You know, all kinds of flavors of Windows and Linux and different protocols, thousands of OT protocols. And this is why you know, EdgeX Foundry matters. This is you know, Eve is to do for the... The goal of E, Project B with an LF Edge, is to do for the IoT component of the smart device edge, the same as what Android did for mobile, you know, the, the sister devices in, in that edge. And, and what is that? What did Android do for mobile that's analogous? It created to... scale. Okay. It created scale. I mean, Android created an ecosystem. And of course, you've got iOS and Apple and all kinds of really cool stuff. I mean, uh, there's, there are different approaches. You know, Apple's yeah. kind of I mean, Last time world. I checked, iOS wasn't open source. Yeah, yeah, iOS is more of a walled garden. But I mean, I have uh, Apple products because sure. I, I like the experience. But, you know, there's different merit to each one. But Android... You know, I have people all the time who are like, oh, open source, why would we give everything to open source? I'm like, open source is the new way to drive standards and standards drive scale. Right. And people are like, I'm like, do you think Google 
you know, didn't make money on Android and all the ad revenue that that ecosystem drove. I mean, this is if you don't have some sort of open source model going forward, it's going to be difficult because it's ultimately about scaling interconnected ecosystems, and that does not work without open. Anyway, so 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 Android creates that network effect within the mobile space and creates that open you know thing, and it's a trade off. You know, open doesn't always provide the, the same curated experience as a, more of a quote unquote walled garden. You know, there's trade offs, but Eve. The reason why we put it into LF Edge is, you know, to create that vendor neutral governance. You know, there's a difference between open source, just put it on GitHub, and open source in an organization like LF Edge or a Linux Foundation where you get structured governance. If you cannot govern it with open TSC meetings, technical steering committee meetings, you know, it's a technical meritocracy. The best way to vote is with your keyboard, writing code. If you don't have that structured governance, it is not really vendor neutral. And so we needed it to be vendor neutral. So, so Zadita is a company we put even into uh, LF Edge. And we're seeing more and more people kind of pile on. If you install Eve on the box, you get, it's an easy button for secure dial tone. You get connected, all the security benefits, and then you use your apps of choice. We are not in the data path at all. And so that gives you sort of like that, you know, Android sort of, so to speak, foundation for headless IoT devices uh, that don't have a UI in the same sense as an, an Android device. Got it. And uh, are there devices that are shipping with Eve as standard part of the stack? Yeah, there's actually a page on the, the Eve community page like called Eve and Market. And so we're working with companies. We'll put that in the show notes along with the Linux Foundation white paper. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're working with companies like Advantech and Lanner and, and uh, Supermicro and, you know, broadly speaking, you know, Intel. We've got ARM, ARM boxes that we're adding. Dell, you know, HPE, you know, all of the above. And, and again, it's like, you know, the Android of, of the IT edge, the one stack you need, and then you take your control of choice. Of course, Zadita would love to sell you a controller, but we're actually enabling other competitive products because, you know, rising tides float all boats. Yeah. We're all better off if we have more standard components and then you win by merit and not lock in. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's, I, I agree. I've, I encounter people that are like, well, why would I give away my crown jewels? And well, first of all, you shouldn't give away your crown jewels. You should always no, have no, some no. differentiator, right? That yeah, adds yeah, value yeah. on top of it. But what you want is you want a, an ecosystem mm-hmm. of lots of participants that all have a shared interest in building a platform upon which they can differentiate more quickly and deliver value more quickly to customers. Because yeah. if each of us has to go and reinvent you know, all the layers of the stack for every device, not only do we create incompatibility, uh, which is a pain for customers in particular, let alone developers. But we we don't have this sort of shared momentum that we can get by having by having open standards. Yes. And I can see it everywhere. You know, my favorite example, and this this the younger crowd won't get this, is 35 millimeter film. You know, the camera companies and the film companies said, look, we'll compete on the emulsion and the materials and the shutter mechanisms and the lenses, but we're not gonna compete on the distance between the sprockets on the film. Right, right, right. No, that's, 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 that's and that enabled anybody to make film for anybody else's camera and gave consumers a lot of choice and businesses a lot of flexibility for, for competing. And it grew the overall market. Exactly. You know, it's, it's important. We see this with the, all the tech companies getting behind like Blu-ray and, you know, different formats. Of course, they're Blu-ray. And then, Another good example, yeah. But here's the deal. So this may be, you know, for the younger uh, crowd, won't remember the VHS tapes versus beta, but yeah. here's the example of why ecosystems are important. Beta was the superior technology to VHS, but VHS went after the studios and got them to sign on to produce the content and the content is what wins. And so that's why VHS won out. And beta was still used kind of behind the scenes as the the format for like studios and uh, like like, like TV studios and stuff like high end equipment. But, but, you know, it's about 
ecosystems and, and you build one, join one, but either way, be a part of one or you're going to struggle going forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you mentioned earlier that you were you know, part of the founding team of edX Foundry. And edX Foundry and, and Eve are both projects within Linux Foundation's LF Edge. So how do those two projects relate? Like what, what is edX Foundry compared to Eve and how, how do you use them together? How do they even relate to each other? Yeah, so using the Android analogy again, Eve is more like Android and EdgeX is the app. Eve is, is a bare metal sort of orchestration foundation with an open API that enables you to deploy things in virtual machines or containers on, you know, on top of it. Your choice of apps, not in the data path at all. You, know, you choose what you want. You choose what hardware. And the beauty of Eve too is because it's agnostic to hardware, I can run on an x86, I can run on ARM, I can run with any coprocessing. So last I checked, it's not just about GPUs, FPGAs. It seems every day there's a new coprocessing silicon you know, company being announced, TPU, TensorFlow, I mean, whatever, yeah. yeah, any of that. So you need to be, you have complete choice overall. EdgeX then rides in the application layer above. You know, so EdgeX is about, you know, so a lot of people think of you know, protocol support. So, so like take Modbus, legacy protocol used widely in energy uh, buildings, you know, whatnot, BACnet, same thing building for building automation. Modbus has two versions. One runs serial over serial ports, RS-45, and one runs over Ethernet. And there's a certain degree of hardware support required. Some, some run on Powerline modems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What some people don't realize is that there's, there's lower level supporting serial does not mean you support Modbus. It means you support the transport, yeah. but there's an application layer protocol. So it's almost like the, the, the telephone wires, then the people talking, and then the dialect, the specific dialect you use is that last little bit. And that's what EdgeX does. When, when that power meter, you know, what does it mean? You know, what's the semantics for voltage and, and you know, a current and whatever? Today, of 400 and something IoT platforms, every single one of them writes that protocol different, you know, that support for that one power meter. So I have 450 drivers for one device. So, so EdgeX sort of normalizes all of the... Yeah, it's, it's a universe... The, the quote-unquote APIs or you right. know, interface yeah, yeah. to all of these different... Yeah, think of it as a double translation engine. So you write protocol drivers that plug in on the bottom open API in the middle, and then you write cloud connectors or backend application services on the top. And EdgeX is about those APIs in the middle. And so as long as you plug in, you know, and, and you can crowdsource all that. So since it's a microservices architecture, like you can write a protocol driver for your sensor and plug in. But the, the sensor makers don't do that today because they'd have to write 450 of them for all the platforms. So, so let, me, let, me, let me see if I got this right. So um, let's say I make a sensor that allows you to read temperature. Sure. I imagine EdgeX Foundry has a general semantic concept of Temperature. Give me the temperature. So I would take my device and in the microcode and the software that's on that device, I would then I'd write a driver that plugs into EdgeX Foundry that With says the when, when you get the request to read temperature, tell me and I'll give it to you. Is that basically how yeah, it works? And, and so this and, yeah. and the SDK has made it to where I the way I talk temperature, my dialect is now translated to the the kind of secret decoder ring in EdgeX, and then that transfers it to whatever language that your north end wants to speak towards the cloud or to yeah. wherever you're going. And it, so it, you know, if you ever watch Big Lebowski, I, I would joke, it's, it's the dude, it's the rug that ties the room together, you know, so to speak. Yeah. That rug really ties the room. But also, you know, it's just, and we were very careful when we started that we did not want to pick a, a data model in the middle. So it's very flat in the middle, just Switzerland as data passes through and then you choose whatever you want on either end. Because the moment you pick a data model, you're wrong to somebody and then they don't want to use it. Sure. 
So we were very particular. And then the reason why X is in the name is because it's trademarked. And so you can have EdgeX compliant sensors and EdgeX compliant apps and cloud connectors. And so it's, this is about creating an ecosystem. But all of that rides on Who top governs of, the, the certification? There's a program spinning up within the EdgeX technical committee within LFEdge. So then it becomes you know, vendor neutral. That's another reason for it to be uh, under open source governance is right. a lot of times those, those uh, certifications become political. And Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and open source in general has just become the, the, it's the modern way to drive standards. It used to be that I get a bunch of people together, Geneva or otherwise, we talk a lot, we write a document, and then people do stuff to that document. Well, it turns out I can rent, run code. I can't run, you know, PowerPoint or, you know, whatever, like a, a, a document. And so collaboration and open source, that shared technology investment, as you mentioned, I picked up this word, I can't remember from who, but I'm like, it minimizes undifferentiated heavy lifting. Right. Yeah. Stop doing that. That's right. Start focusing on value. That's right. And, and it, it helps you create a snowball effect for standardization. Now, standardization with specs is true SDO, standard bodies, you know, writing specs. That's the truest form of standardization. But what open source is creating is de facto standards. If you get enough people using something, it's a de facto standard. And it's just a new way of, of driving that sort of network effect for standardization and ecosystems. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, that people talk about a lot is the role of artificial intelligence. And, you know, obviously with all these sensors creating all this data, the, one of the best ways to process it, not the only one, one of the best ways to process it is, is with AI. So h- how do you see, you know, this, this other emerging massive trend, which is, you know, I mean, AI has been around forever, but not in the way that we have it now, where like machines can actually teach themselves some pretty amazing techniques like identifying faces things. So how, how do you how do you see edge and AI and this overall trend working, you know, how, how does that work together? How does how do they support each other? Yeah. Yeah, so AI obviously a big trend and you know is a subset machine learning and you know but I also say that I there's a lot of people out there that are doing basic rules. If this, then that rules engines. They're like, look at my AI. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> there's a, there's a guy. I, I, it's, I it's like, it's like the, remember those old expert systems. Yeah. 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 It was programming for liberal arts majors. <laughs> there's a guy online. I, I just need to attribute it. I, I, I can't remember the name, but did a, a post that went a little viral. It was like, if it's, if it's machine learning, it's probably written in Python. And if it's AI, it's probably written in PowerPoint. <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, good stuff. But, but, you know, no, AI is, you know, definitely coming into its own. I mean, a lot of this co processing, a lot of the, the, the compute power is helping, you know, these, building these neural networks. There's standardization happening, things like Onyx, you know, helping you kind of bridge standards. Of course, TensorFlow, you know, really picking up. So, a lot of AI happens initially in the cloud. I mean, that's where the, the deepest of deep learning is going to happen, you know, the scalable compute. But then as people start to realize, you know, the bandwidth problems, latency issues, privacy issues in terms of uh, data sovereignty issues. This is why you're seeing those tools extending to the edge. And like we said before, it's a continuum. To prepare for AI world, you need to be investing in a variety of abstractions. So starting at the foundation, I mean, this is why Eve matters, why Project EdgeX, there's a lot of good stuff out there, of course, it's not just about those, really LF Edge in general. The last thing that you virtualize, greatest assets your people, second biggest assets your data. And the last thing to virtualize is data. And if you separate data out from applications, and then, of course, applications out from infrastructure, and, and you make the right investments in portability across that continuum, I don't need to know today you know, where I'm going to be running my AI models. I can just kind of move them as we go. You're going to start in the cloud, and certainly your training. 
And then maybe I deploy an inferencing model to the edge because, you know, like I said, with computer vision, you know, I want to send events. There's a car parked there for four hours. That's an event versus here's a video of a car that just ate up your server bandwidth, um, your network bandwidth. You know, so that's important. So Edge, edge AI, you know, uh, the killer app is computer vision. High bandwidth, same as, you know, using AI to analyze for that little tick in the machine with, you know, vibration data. If I'm running a, a thousand hertz or, or uh, eight thousand, you know, hertz, like, um, eight kilohertz of vibration data to look for the little needle in the haystack that says this, this motor is about to fail in you know, a month or two or weeks or weeks or whatever. I don't want to send that high bandwidth data over the web. You know, I want to analyze it and say, hey, got a problem, send a partner to tech. So we're seeing that happening. And so AI, so number one, it's, it's part of the continuum. You know, Edge AI, we also see, of course, it's about investing in cloud-native principles everywhere you can. So this notion of containerization and platform independence. And, and you do not want to hard-couple any given edge data source to any given backend because then you're kind of locked into these silos. You need to kind of, so there's all these layers of abstraction. But, you know, the key considerations for Edge AI, it's standardization. How do I deploy all those models and make sure that they're not deviating? How do I prevent false positives or just, you know, detections? Uh, go Google Chihuahua AI muffin, you know, on, uh, online, and you'll see, like, pictures of, like, you know, AI messing up. It looks like a blueberry. It looks like they said, this is a Chihuahua, but actually it's a blueberry muffin. You know, it, can I tell the difference between a car, a bicycle, and a lamp? Sure. But it's a little harder when you get into some of those weird things. Ultimately, though, with AI, it's about domain knowledge. Data scientists don't have the domain knowledge. They just know how to program AI, those tools. The algorithms for things like facial detection, license plate detection, you know, how old is that person, demographics, is it a car, a lamp, or a bicycle, that's going to become commodity. They're already kind of becoming commodity because people are exchanging data, you know, training you know, things. Long-term AI will be about creating models for very specific contexts. You know, that part geometry on that line for quality control, you know, this interface for that, you know, thing, this particular medical field. And so that, that's where, you know, I, I would caution people that are getting into AI. It's a great, great space. I mean, it's super, super important, but at the same time, don't do undifferentiated heavy lifting, you know, go after the value areas. And that's why you're seeing open source also really bringing up, you know, the AI thing and, and, you know, people just getting to good data is, is, is a trick, you know, in the U S especially when you have to watch for privacy and all that, there's other regions of the world that don't really care about privacy so much. And so they're, they're ahead on AI because they've got massive sets of data that they're training their algorithms with. And, and so, you know, it's all part of ethical AI, big consideration, but knowing that that model is deployed and you don't have weirdness with the camera angle changing and the lighting conditions bad. And then all of a sudden you got a chihuahua instead of a blueberry muffin. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things that, you know, people often ask me, what do I see as the drivers of edge computing? And um, there are a lot of drivers and it's a, it's a you know, pretty complex emergence, but one of the big drivers is we're moving from a world of humans talking machines to machines talking machines. Yeah. And one of the things that people that aren't, down in the weeds like you and I tend to be, don't tend to realize is just how much the scale changes. It's not just like things get a little faster, the data gets a little bigger, right? If you think about a billion sensors generating petabytes of data, a, a petabyte is one million terabytes. Right, right, right. And they're right? always I, There's on. not enough fiber. The, the, you know, it's faster to put that on a disk drive on a train right, right, right. than it is to ship it over, over the internet, given you know, a very large pipe. 
And then you think about like time, right? I mean, humans operate in ones of seconds or, you know, maybe fractions of a second if you're looking at the... Yeah, and got to sleep half the day, you know, or so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But but things, most of the things that we're consciously aware of happen in in a second-ish. Yeah. And, you know, machines operate in microseconds and nanoseconds. And a microsecond is one one millionth of a second. And so if you're trying to process, you know, many terabytes or petabytes of data in, you know, a few millionths of a second, you're going to have to do it. Well, first of all, much closer to the device. And you're going to have to do it with tools that are only now coming into common existence, which is, right. you know, servers that can handle that kind of data in, in real time. And, you know, one of the examples you brought up earlier was the the autonomous car. And I don't know, maybe autonomous cars are coming out, it's sort of going out of favor because we all thought they were going to be here in 2020. And I think the, yeah. the dust is settling. and Everybody yeah, realizes, yeah, yeah. no, we're, we're a decade away, certainly for urban navigation, right? Yeah, people are using the term assisted driving. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You can see the world change. But I think what's interesting is, you know, today's autonomous cars, for the most part, have all of the processing on the car. They've got all the sensors on the yeah. car and the car truly is autonomous. It's designed to be disconnected, frankly, because yeah. there's no network to support it. Yeah, their data centers on wheels. And that's also the best way that they can, you know, at that scale, collect and, and process the data because you just you basically put a data center on the car. Yeah. Now, you don't have to think very hard about that to realize that that is not the most cost-effective way to deliver autonomous driving to the masses, right? You can't put a quarter million dollars for the servers in a car and charge $20,000 for it. So obviously, all these things will be size-reduced and cost-reduced, but also there's a set of functions that can improve the experience um, that can happen you know, in the cloud, so to speak, probably in edge cloud so that it's yeah, yeah, low yeah. latency, but they don't have to happen in the car. I mean, obviously you want the braking system that stops you from crashing to happen on the car. But let's look at an example where I'm approaching an intersection. My LIDARs can't see around the corner. There may be other cars coming or pedestrians or some other object coming. If my car is talking to a nearby server that's looking at traffic flows and people from other directions, it can tell my car that you probably should start gradually braking. So even though the car would still stop me safely when it could detect the thing around the corner, hopefully, it might, it might cause a very uncomfortable ride. Whereas yeah. if you've got some intelligence. So, so it's really interesting how, you know, with cost and features and capabilities that we're going to be making these decisions about where we place these workloads, because some of them can run on the device and should run on the device, and some of them can run other places. And I think it's going to change pretty dynamically over time. I'm, I'm just interested if you're seeing any you're trends. See a mix. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You're going to see a mix. If it's again, it's if it's latency critical, it's going to run on a LAN. So a LAN in the case of a car is the car. Yeah. And then if it's latency sensitive, like approaching the intersection, you know, but I can augment, you know, the decisions that each car makes, plus the person that's looking at their phone about to walk in front of that car at the intersection, maybe. Uh, I can alert all three parties, you know, in the moment using that, what do they call it? Cellular to vehicle to everything. There's like a new trend or whatever, something like that. Yeah, there's vehicle to vehicle networks and vehicle to infrastructure networks and probably both are going to exist. And yeah. Which you also need open standards for, by the way. But anyway. Certainly. But yeah, so you're going to see that. So infotainment, anything around augmented reality for heads up displays, things that augment your experience, you always want to run. But more often than not, you want to run further up the stack at the access edge, regional edge, whatnot, you know, some colo location like what you guys do. But like you just, you're going to see a mix yeah. and it, it really, you know, meanwhile, privacy. So a lot of people too think, oh, it's all computes happening on servers. Well, guess what? Uh, increasingly it's happening in constrained devices. You know, that last edge as part of that continuum, tiny machine learning, tiny ML is a big trend just over the past six months. There's all kinds of talk about it. Easy example, hey, Alexa, you know, in theory, Alexa is not talking to anything. I mean, basically Alexa doesn't. It was all worried about it. 
it doesn't have any internet connection until you say, hey, Alexa, and there's a tiny algorithm inside of a chip that says, oh, wake word, okay, now make the connection. And so that's a good example of tiny ML. So you're gonna see more of those very fixed function things happening everywhere. In general, too, AI is today, it's a little bit of a misnomer because true AI to me means you have emotion, you've got morals and ethics and all that. That's like why the human, you know, you know that's a big distinguishing factor, big distinguishing factor for people. But AI today is more about, can I program a very complex set of rules into a model? Like, you know, speed, you know, distance, road conditions, lighting conditions, everything and for a car breaking at an intersection. Things that are constrained by a structured set of rules, but then there's the old, you know, the old thing about like, hey, do you run yourself into a tree or do you hit the, you know, one nun or like whatever, you know, none of that anyone should ever have to decide. But we see those types of decisions that AI is just not, you know, that's not the same thing. I don't know. I, something you said earlier just reminded me. Um, so a lot of people are kind of in this innovators dilemma, you know, right now, just in terms of how do you pivot to change. It's like I, I do a lot of conference stuff as you do. do I Maybe mean, not so much. You know, it's a lot more virtual these days, but still. And when I talk about technology to, to people that are just sort of in a different industry, like maybe it's the, I'm talking to a bunch of people that do the building maintenance or something, and, and they just have their, their world and the IT people have their world. Often I get the bunch of people staring at me with the arms folded, like, I don't like you because you're talking about things that make me change. Right. And then you throw the Uber logo up and say, look what they did to the taxis in six months, yeah. you know, the whole industry. So I was on, it just something reminded me about this. I was on the phone with, a, oh, it was the connected machines, you know, more and more machines being connected. So I was on the phone with a very large payments processor. I will not name the name. You know, they do like the payments in stores and whatnot, credit cards and stuff. And I knew that they'd gotten really impacted by Square. You know, people like that. You know, to completely change the game of mobile payments. And I'm like, I thought about this ahead of time. So I get on the phone and they're trying to figure out their IoT strategy. It was clear that they're just like, I don't know. And, and, and they were like, I don't want another Square to happen to us. I'm like, oh yeah, I can imagine that. That really kind of impacted you and you want to go figure it out. And there's like, we just don't know what to do. And, you know, it's kind of stuck in an innovator's dilemma. Like, if we just do what we're do- we've always done better. And I, I planned this for the end of the call. And I said, hey, guys, I got to go. But have you thought about when machines start making payments? You know, and they're like, it blew their minds. And I'm like, the fact that, I didn't say this, but the fact that that blows your minds is exactly why another square is going to happen to you. You've got to get outside of your bubble and start to think about how to pivot to an adjacency. Yeah, And this notion of a machine doing analytics locally, and I'm about to break, and then I'm going to order a part in a tech. But guess what? That machine is talking to another machine across the network, and then you're coordinating. So don't just send out the tech to that machine. This machine is going to break too in the same region. So drive out once and replace that both parts. You know what? This machine is so broken. You've replaced the parts so much that replace that machine, it's going to cost you less over three years. Yeah. These are those interconnected you know, decisions that you start seeing. And I, we're not at that point yet. As today, it's just like, what's going on with my machine? But over time, this network effect across ecosystem, that's just for your business. And then imagine you know, all these other businesses interconnecting and retailer crossing over into the home and all this stuff. This is the true power. That's why the last thing you know, I had done before coming over to um, Zidia and we're continuing to work on it you know, with, with a bunch of folks is you know, announced this project called Alvarium, which is around this notion of data confidence fabrics. How do I send data across networks with measurable confidence? Long story, you know, but it's basically how do I start to enable what, I, what I've always kind of called the holy grail of digital, which is basically maintain privacy and IP protection, but sell stuff to strangers, data resources and services to people I've never met. That's ultimate scale. And you cannot take people out to dinner fast enough to build the trust. You must have technology to help you. And it's not just about ledger. It's all of these layers, root of trust, open APIs, immutable storage, ledger, confidential computing, 
system level trust. And that's what Alvarium is about. So there's, there's a really cool video that we reproduced online at Alvarium.org, but lots of stuff out there. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Yeah. I'm like the micro machines guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we're, we're almost at the end of the interview and I, I kind of wanted to ask you two more questions that will have you draw on your, the length of time you've been in edge and IOT. And so I, I guess the, the, the first question is, if you think about, you know, the arc from 2014 to today, what, what's been the biggest change you've seen? I think the biggest change, aside from just people starting to realize where the right use cases are versus, hey, isn't that neat? But just because you should doesn't mean you should, or just because you can doesn't mean you should. I think the biggest change is people having gotten out of their systems that it's a good idea to try to own everything. What happened, why we got to 450, 450 platforms is that everybody rushed to you know, build all those platforms, but really what is... Is that a real number? Yeah, it's, it was the running joke. It probably peaked at 500. I don't know. When we started EdgeX, we actually thought internally at Dell, we're like, hey, do we make our own platform? And then I'm like, no, I don't want to be the 201st platform. Yeah. We joined, we decided as a team that this needs to be open. You know, Dell's, you know, the long history of open stuff. I mean, it's, why it's one of the main reasons it's a great company, but still it's like, <laughs> we, we don't need all these platforms. We need necessarily unique hardware and software. We need people offering great services and people with domain knowledge. And so one of the biggest things I've seen and why we started EdgeX, why we, I help you know, with you shape LF Edge and a bunch of great people is that we've got to get away from everyone trying to do everything. They're all like, I'm going to be in the data path. I'm going to own everything. It's going to be awesome. And then they realize, holy crap, that's hard. We need to band together. And maybe I should do one thing really well. And so the way I'm building up the ecosystem with the team at Zadita is I want an entourage of problem solvers that plug into a more of an open core model. You know, really good experts that augment our own security you know, benefits, really good AI companies, really good you know, people that do clouds. I mean, we're working very closely with Microsoft and, and, and others, for example, integrating you know, with those tools. Really good hardware providers. It takes a village. Yeah. Anytime anyone does everything, rarely do you do one thing well. Yeah. And we, that's the biggest change I've seen over the past five years is people realizing maybe I should have a go-to dance move. Yeah. Well, and, and I certainly am feeling that too, that sense of like, okay, a lot of these things that felt loosey-goosey uh, a couple of years ago are starting to get traction and meaningful collaboration yeah. and meaningful interfaces and meaningful products. And so I guess looking forward, if you could wave a magic wand, like what's the one domino you would topple to accelerate all this goodness that we imagine is going to come out of the future with edge computing? Oh, yeah, that's a tough question. I think the next, I mean, one of them is just continuing on this interoperability thing, but I think the next big domino to topple, why, why we kind of tried to get ahead of the curve a little bit, you know, as a thought leader at, at Dell and why we're working on it, there's other great efforts like the Trust Over IP Foundation, there's um, all this. The next domino that you have to solve is trust. You've got to figure out a way to scale trust over heterogeneous networks where none of this stuff will ever work. Do, do you feel that problem is still unsolved? Oh yeah. Well, now, yeah, I mean, we've got we've got a path, and if some of it's just going to be. In, in where's that going to come from? Is this something that's going to come out of? It's, out of- it's going to it's going to come from a variety of different consortia efforts, open source collaboration. I mean, we put Alvarium into uh, as a Linux foundation. You know, it's a seed project. It's still kind of bootstrapping and all that. What's the, what's the name of that? Alvarium. Oh, the Alvarium, Alvarium. The video. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes too. It's Latin for beehive, like interconnected honeycombs. But the video is really cool. It shows how like a day in the life of how you go across all these things. It's exactly, it has the intersection showing cars sort of, blah, 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 you know, talking to each other intersection that shows retailers coming into the home. There's a reason there's a service provider in the middle of it because service providers, massive opportunity to become a service provider for service providers. 
who owns the trust in the home? Well, today, I mean, I, I mean, I know my UPS driver by first name that goes on Amazon. Amazon's great, but how do you change the game? You make it to where nobody owns a trust. Imagine a, a home gateway that you could drop in retail apps and healthcare. I would certainly feel insurance. a lot better about introducing new technology into my life. Right. Yeah. And there's no way that those things can cross pollinate the apps. Only when you set the terms, and you, so the Alvarian video goes through all this stuff. Only based on privacy terms you set. And generally speaking, as consumers, if you get value and you trust it, your privacy, you'll give up some privacy. And, you know, if I told you 10 years ago you would leave location-based services on your phone, you'd think I'm crazy. Yeah. But people, most people do today because they get value. Yeah. You know, where's the nearest pizza joint? Whatever. You know, so this is going to evolve. But the, the, the biggest domino to fall for that is, number one, it's about interoperability. Number two, it's about building trust at scale by using technology to help you. You know, and, and that's what Alvarian is about. That's what these other things, that's much further out. But the, the thing I always tell customers, you know, in, in my role, so I build ecosystem and just help with our thought leadership. You will never, quote unquote, scale to the grail. I needed a rhyme. Actually, I got a slide I joke. It's like the shake and bake and Talladega Nights. <laughs> shake and bake, you know, scale and grail. You'll never scale to the grail if you don't take an open path. Even if right now it's about simple, solve some simple problems, create, you know, some value increasingly, you know, be a part of an ecosystem, see this network effect, but you'll never get to the ultimate goal of, of just entirely new business transformation across many markets. And this, this just sort of mashup of everything, if you don't have an open base. That's why what LF Edge you know, is really important. That's why we're all working on this stuff. And then let's go make some money around the wheel. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally great. Great way to end it. So, so Jason, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It's been a great show. And how can people find you online? Uh, I'm I'm on Twitter. An old bandmate of mine uh, uh, nicknamed me Def Shepherd way back when after Def Leppard. And I so love that. it. And and the, the the listeners can't see this. We're on Zoom <laughs> recording this, but Jason's sitting in a room surrounded by instruments. I think I count at least three guitars and a drum set. Four guitar, five guitars. Yeah. So I I play music. You know, you can find me online too. Is a is my band. I'm not gonna you know overly promote it, but easy to find. But people always ask about Def my, Shepherd. I love it. My my office is my home studio and people are like, where'd you, you play music? I'm like, no, I'm in Austin. When you move here, they just give you all this stuff. He was moving out of Austin. He can't take his yeah, yeah. It's a music town. Just take this stuff. You want a drum set too? Yeah. Here's a ukulele. Okay, so Def Shepherd on, on Twitter, obviously you're involved in Linux Foundation. People can find you in yeah, the community easy there. Yeah, to find. Yeah, you know, board member there as well. And so I'm easy to find online, generally speaking, and, and whatnot. And, you know, I'm always up for a conversation. You know, it's just, like I said earlier on, it's, this is about collaboration. It's about surrounding yourself with good people, you know, the network effect and, you know, everything else follows. Terrific, Jason. Thanks a lot. All right, have a good one. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven. Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Ori Industries is building the world's largest edge cloud. Their products power the next generation of intelligent applications through unparalleled access to major communication networks worldwide. Ori is laying the foundations for application developers to seamlessly deploy to uncharted edge computing infrastructure across the globe. Learn more at ori.co.